because it's taken 25 years of effort and 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 having that as a goal insight throughout my career that every maybe every little decision that I've made has ultimately led to that so it's not something that you do overnight and you're not lucky at it and somebody doesn't put it in your lap you you it, it takes a lot of dedication a lot of time a lot of hours and and being focused on that as an outcome I'm talking to the South African pilot Charlie Kimball today about his career in aviation. Well, it's so lovely to meet you here on Zoom and I'm so uh, interested in hearing your story because um, how did you get into aviation? Goodness, uh, it was my grandfather, I think, that planted the seed. So he flew really? in too and uh, he was on multi-engine transport aircraft um, and then ferrying um, B-24 Liberator bombers across from Canada uh, to the UK. So he never saw active combat, but some of the stories that he would tell me were um, raised an eyebrow and uh, mm. that started the passion really. And um, I started reading, avidly reading everything I could get my hands on from a very young age. And uh, those those pilots, uh, they they really they were not trained as as they were uh, or as you are as you guys are now today, isn't it? I mean, some right. of them just got into those planes and and had to fly. Yeah, I mean, um, there was there was obviously training programs, but it there wasn't the time or the money, um, particularly the time, um, to put them through hundreds or even thousands of hours worth of training to get them up to a point where they could be safe. Um, so life was a bit cheaper back then. Uh, there was a pressing urge to get uh, people into aircraft. And so uh, it was a real, uh, it was a real sort of um, what we would call a, a chopping environment as far as the training was concerned. So you either met the standards or you were gone and streamed off into a different purpose. Um, quite early on. Uh, so it was a bit of a sink or swim. These days, um, there's a lot more help and assistance and training, and we focus a lot more on the humanitarian aspects of personalities and how to help people through their mm. in the best possible way. So it's, um, yeah, back then it was done to meet a need. Um, and in this day and age, it's, it's um, somewhat different. But tell me now, so you said you started reading a lot and then um, and, and the love for aviation started then there. Yeah, it did. Um, so, yeah, reading a lot of the books that my grandfather would put in front of me and show me pictures. And, and then I started building airfix kit model planes like every small yeah. boy and plastering those all over the ceiling. And that was really what... Um, inspired my father to get back into aviation because he started a private pilot's license uh, in the 60s but couldn't afford to carry on with it um, and about the time that I was showing an interest his business was doing better uh, and he was in a position to go and learn to fly and buy a little small robin aeroplane uh, which we have for many years uh, in the family um, and it was he got me flying a lot actually age sort of 12 and onwards from the right hand seat sat on a load of coats really? couldn't reach the rudder pedals but i could still hold the stick wow and that was how i did my first landing age 12 i think sat on a pile of coats so i could see over the dashboard amazing 
<laughs> so, uh, what? Uh, because I also heard that you can get actually your license at a very young age, uh, uh, earlier than you can a car, and you drive a yeah. car. Yeah, well, it's about the same age, actually. It's 17. Um, it, I think in some European countries, it's less than that. And for gliding, it's less again. Uh, but in the UK, it's 17 for uh, a fixed-wing piston-engine aeroplane. Um, and so I went solo on my 17th birthday. Uh, mm. Got my license through an RAF flying scholarship shortly thereafter. Well, you must have been uh, very privileged in the sense that you already from a very young age understood the importance of safety when you fly, because I'm sure your dad taught you that very, very early on. Yes, yes, very much so. Um, I mean, he didn't major on it because I was quite scared myself. Oh, I think okay. um, yeah. I have a fear of heights, always have done. Um, I certainly don't like being up ladders on, and the Eiffel Tower was the worst experience of my life. <laughs> and so I, I had an inbuilt natural fear anyway um, mm. that just was enhanced by education, really, and just mm. knowing the things that can get you into trouble. Um, you learn a lot about them through your own experience, but it's this is a career probably a bit like medicine where you – to be a good pilot, you really want to continually evolve your own skill set and work on your own uh, ability and knowledge by by reading and staying in touch with latest industry developments and best practices. But you also, somebody also said, uh, well, a pilot said the other day that um, this is probably one of the careers where you do the most training, continuous training. Yes, correct. And yeah. testing as well, the, the testing yeah. that you have to go through. That's right. Every six months, uh, we're back into the simulator doing um, what, what's called a, a line proficiency check or uh, an operator's proficiency check, LPC, OPC, uh, which tests our skills for jet flying um, really to the nth degree. Um, and it follows quite a set format. Um, so it's engine failures, engine failures at takeoff, rejected takeoffs, fires, um, other scenarios with multiple failures. Um, and then we have a, what's called a, a line proficiency check where they we try and make it much more like a regular flight as opposed to, right, we have to hit each of these training items. They say, they give you a scenario. You've got 10 passengers in your Gulfstream, you're going between Basel and Geneva, and the weather's terrible, uh, there's thunderstorm activity in the local area, and you're sort of building up this picture of what potential threats are that day, and then sure enough, all those things happen, and it's how you then mitigate the risks as best as possible and, and, and deal with the failures that are presented to you. So the training has evolved over years, um, where it's not just a case of um, an engine failure at V1 or decision speed for takeoff, it's which everybody gets to practice over and over again until they're very proficient at. Um, it's it's evolving as our knowledge of the industry grows and our experience of aviation grows and and how to get the best out of people by giving them more realistic scenarios rather than doing uh, repeating by rote like a parrot, I suppose is probably the best oh, way. Yeah. 
So it's it's actually uh, wanting you to succeed, really, and and wanting you to succeed with the tests. Yes, absolutely right. And I mean, uh, I think I've always been involved in light aircraft instruction um, ever since day one, when I was sort of 18, 19 years old. One of the th- first things I got was my flight instructor's rating. And the way that we train that when we're teaching somebody to fly is that we we follow a set syllabus, but if there's a particular area that we're weak at, we just keep going at that until they're proficient at it and probably more proficient than somebody that was okay at it in the first place. The airlines have never approached their commercial training in that way. They, because they have so many candidates to put through, they, uh, they have the same program of training for everybody. And so if somebody's particularly weak at one area, there isn't really a great deal of opportunity to put that right in that simulator session because the time is expensive, sims are expensive. Um, So what they're doing now is is focusing much more on evidence-based training. So they look back at somebody's training history and they say, okay, well, he's always done well on engine failures, so there's no point giving him that. But where he did badly was electrical failures and managing that situation. And so they will build in his area of weakness into his next simulator session. So it becomes much more of a, uh, a structured, personalized training program. And, I mean, really, they're, they're the lessons that we've taken from light aircraft training. And are invaluable i think in the commercial world oh really and it's really quite taken until recently to be introduced like that but now from there from where you got your private pilot license and you said you got your instructor license as well did you know already uh, what the next route or, or the next part for you will be Yes. yeah i really wanted to join the RAF. that was all i wanted to do was go and really? fly jets and make my grandfather proud um, um, and unfortunately I couldn't do it because of eyesight and I I had a, a period of time where I went to work in the car industry thinking that flying was over for me and one day I was eating so what is, sorry what is it about the eyesight so you have you have to you can't wear glasses then not not in the RAF to fly fast jets oh, no. I, see. Okay. I think you can ultimately but you have to have met the perfect eyesight requirements at day one for medical and if you haven't haven't met those requirements it's just a way of filtering applicants really Um, so you might be you might have a really great aptitude for it but if you don't meet the physical requirements then um i can understand why they do it they don't want people's contact lenses popping out in the middle of a hygiene (laughs) 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 so it really it, it kind of upset me because I thought, oh, I don't know what to do now. So I wandered off into the car industry and got distracted by BMW and Aston Martin for a short period of time. Mm-hmm. And I saw an airliner flying over and I thought, well, it's not fast jet, but it's still flying airplanes. And about that time, my father retired from construction equipment business and he bought the local flying school at Sywell, Northampton. And we then spent uh, 10 years running that business, turning it around from a small company with three aeroplanes into quite a busy flying school with, I think we had um, 400 members and about 14 aircraft wow. by the time we finished. Sorry, we had 14 full-time members of staff and nine aircraft. Mm. Um, 
and I cut my teeth there and developed a passion for what we call tail draggers. So older aeroplanes like Tiger Moths, Super Cubs, Pit Specials. Um, and it was while I was there instructing that I met a training captain from uh, a company called Monarch Airlines, which was a quite an old famous airline in the UK. And he uh, checked me out in a Super Cub, saw that I had a bit of an aptitude for it, and then sponsored my application to Monarch Airlines through a company called CTC. Uh, my feet really didn't touch the ground. And before I knew what had happened, I was on an Airbus type rating course, age 23. Wow. And then Monarch was my company. I loved it. Um, I didn't ever want to leave. We had a lovely mixture of short haul and long haul flying, which I thoroughly enjoyed. Um, and alongside that, I ran the flying school with my sister and my father. So we had the business interest alongside. Um, and then a number of things happened um, around that time. Um, 2007, uh, we saw the beginning of the financial crisis coming and we were advised to sell our US stock holdings um, and so knew that a global recession was coming and probably owning a flying school was not the right thing to do. So we, we sold the flying school um, and that turned out to be a, a, a very good move as it happened. Um, I was secure in Monarch, so I was okay. I was happy there. And um, the one thing that I did miss through selling the flying school was our pit special. We had the old Marlborough team aerobatic uh, team pit special. And I'd spent a lot of time teaching people aerobatics and, and uh, developing my own skills through aerobatic competition so that I could pass that information on to our clients. And I'd lost access to that at that stage. So I bought a single seat pit special and started competing very heavily for about four years. Um, mm. That led to winning the National Aerobatic Championships twice. Wow. And that uh, was alongside flying uh, an Airbus? Yes, an Airbus for Monarch. And I was flying long haul with Monarch Airlines at the time. Mm. Um, and, uh, and then my passion for the aerobatics developed, uh, into a business and with, uh, another chap, I ended up buying a, a two seat pit special and using that to train people up to advanced level competitions. And, and that was where I was going really was the top of aerobatics. Um, I, but is it, was it difficult for you from one airplane, you know, if you uh, if you think flying an Airbus and then getting into um, a smaller plane, is that is there a big difference? I mean, do you do you have to adjust every time that you sit? Uh, no, there's no adjustment, really. It's it's like the difference between going between a motorcycle and a car or oh, okay. a car and lorry. Um, mm. They are a similar sort of skill set, i.e a bit of road knowledge helps but they are so different that there's no chance of confusing them or, or getting them mm -hmm. um what happened after that so uh i wanted more time off in the summer to be able to run my business and i was getting concerned that monarch was not looking terribly safe prospect long term um it was looking a bit shaky and i was due for a command on the 757 having come off the Airbus and the 757 was an old type um, that 
if you were on it and you lost your job because your company went bust, it would be hard to find work elsewhere. So I took that opportunity to leave and join Virgin Atlantic. Um, and I went to Virgin for about seven years. Um, and, and kept my aerobatics running alongside uh, my, my, my main job, flying the, the, the 340 at Virgin. Uh, but then sadly, one day my pits was crashed in a mid-air collision by a good client of mine. Um, there was a guy killed in the accident. And it, it so just sorry. really hit me very, very hard. Uh, something that I'd built was responsible for a chap not going home to his family that night. And I really, really struggled with it. And uh, about that time, a couple of friends were killed in flying accidents. Um, and they, um, their, their deaths as well impacted me heavily because it was in aerobatic accidents. And it put me off for quite some time. And I was wondering whether I'm ever going to go back to it. Um, but I was so passionate about it that I did, but I went to work for somebody else on the basis that I don't want the risk of it anymore myself running the business. Um, but I am passionate about flying and the instructing and passing on that information to other people. Um, so I did that for a while. Um, and then what happened? Then I had an amazing opportunity to uh, go and join a Gulfstream private jet as a direct entry captain. And um, that would give me the two weeks on, two weeks off that I needed to run the next business that I started, uh, which was with Cirrus Aircraft. Um, and I'd had a, an opportunity to fly Warbird Spitfires at Biggin Hill. Oh, wow. Um, and that was, the Virgin roster was preventing me from doing those things and mm. doing them well. And so I took the opportunity to, it was a tough decision to make to leave your career airline and, and go to an unknown quantity of a private jet, but with no employment protection. Um, but I went and I found a whole new corner of aviation that I knew nothing about. Really? And I loved it. Um, being given a mobile phone and a credit card and a $60 million private jet and wow. saying, go make it happen, go around the world. I love it. Amazing. Just really, really good fun. Um, yeah. And it's something that you love doing, so it's yeah, it's amazing. Yeah. You, you, no day is like a work day. And but I, I just want to ask you now that uh, this is something that uh, I ask many pilots is uh, because you you talk about all these things that you've done, so that that's building up hours, building up experience, and. Um, uh, but but in in the beginning and quite in the start uh, when you just started flying, there's this time period where you really have to build your hours to go to the next level. So how did you keep yourself motivated at that time? That's a really interesting question because it's uh, there's a a wonderful book Catch Twenty Two, mm. and aviation is the Catch Twenty Two situation right at the beginning is that you don't get the job without the hours and you don't get the hours without the job. Oh, yeah, yeah. So how do you even start? And how did I keep myself motivated? Well, I suppose um, I was quite fortunate in that I got an RA flying scholarship. And so I knew that I had an aptitude for flying. And that made me think, well, I'm passionate about it and I've got the aptitude for it. So everybody else 
is in this industry doing the job. I must be capable of it. I'll just keep going until I find a way. Um, and also about that time, my father bought flying school at Siwa. Oh, okay, yeah. And so I was very, very lucky that my first job was as a flying instructor in a family business. Um, and I recognised that I was incredibly fortunate and not many other people have that opportunity. Um, and it was a wonderful time, you know, helping. It was not just you're a flying instructor, but I was a flying instructor helping build a family business. And, and so I got other aspects out of the business that really motivated me. So my degree had been in management consultancy and strategic management. And I managed to employ quite a lot of what I'd learned in my degree to help build the family business. So I think my route's probably been different to many others. Mm. Um, but it is just a case of you do what you're passionate about. And so if you manage to wake up every day and if you're a refueler on an airfield or you're the guy working in an aircraft maintenance organization, paneling and depaneling and cleaning airplanes, you're around the things that you love. And therefore, getting up to go to work isn't a chore. And you almost doesn't matter what you were. Yeah. It's <laughs> <Just> lucky. <laughs> yeah, because it seems to, to be you have to have really have this passion and, and this love for aviation because it does take a lot of uh, dedication uh, to do it. You know, to get to that point where you where you dream of being. Yes. Yeah. And I think it's very easy for people to look at you and go, oh, look at him. He flies a Gulfstream and a Spitfire and a Pit Special mm -hmm. and runs his own Cirrus business. And you think, somebody said to me the other day, how did you get to fly a Spitfire? And it was almost like a, a slightly barbed and pointed comment. Oh, and okay. uh, <laughs> sort of, uh, all I said was 25 years of hard graft mm -hmm. because it's taken 25 years of effort and, and, and having that as a goal insight throughout my career, that every maybe every little decision that I've made has ultimately led to that. So it's not something that you do overnight and you're not lucky at it. And somebody doesn't put it in your lap. You, you it, it takes a lot of dedication, a lot of time, a lot of hours and, and being focused on that as an outcome. And do you think that... Um everybody can fly do you think it's something do you think you have to have something to to uh, make you be able to fly i think there are some people who have an aptitude for it mm. uh, better than others i think not everybody can do it um i think having run a flying school and my current business is with cirrus aircraft and we have the biggest cirrus training center in the uk um, and we're running four instructors and three aircraft. And so we see a lot of people come through our doors. And the difference with a Cirrus is, it, is it's a very, very high-end private aeroplane. And so the difference with the characters that we see coming through my current business to the ones that came through the family flying school is that these are well-heeled businessmen that are buying this aeroplane as a tool to get from A to B. They're not passionate about aviation per se. They recognize the aeroplane's capability to enhance their life and make their life easier. It's like a time machine. Whereas the guys back in the flying school days 
um, they were the ones that read the books and they were passionate about it. And they'd finally got together the money to go and learn to fly. So I see, I've seen both ends of the spectrum. And I would say that not everybody that comes through from either spectrum has the ability. And some people just keep throwing money at it in time until either the money runs out or the enthusiasm runs out. Oh, yeah. Their instructor says, I'm sorry, but you're just never going to be safe. Oh, really? So so um, there are cases like that where you just say it won't happen. Okay. And then there are other people that get in into an aeroplane like a pit special with you, and you know within 30 minutes that they're one of the best pilots you've ever met. And you mm. can, and they might have no experience. Mm. And interestingly, it's often women. Really? Oh, that's interesting. Well, I heard about the woman who flew the Spitfire in the, during the war with the test pilots. Or they, yeah. or no, 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 they were not the test pilots. They they flew the Spitfires between um, airfields, I think. Or what? What was the story there? Or were yeah. they? Yeah, yeah the Sun Sport Auxiliary, and it was probably a lady called Lettice Curtis. And uh, they were absolutely incredible because where the chaps had been trained on a Tiger Moth and a Harvard and then went into a Spitfire squadron, um, they had very dedicated training on a specific type, which is whatever their squadron flew. Whereas in the ATA, um, these ladies were expected to fly a Spitfire one day and then a Lancaster bomber with four Merlin engines the next day. And they might not have had any training on it at all. They were just given the pilot's operating handbook, told to read it, and then go and ferry it. And, I mean, I find that absolutely extraordinary. Yeah. Well, I heard that women are better at fishing than men, but now this this is a good one as well, flying. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I met, a, um, I met a, a very, very capable and impressive woman called Isabel Rutland, who was in... Um, private equity in London and she was learning she wanted to buy a Cirrus and learn to fly in order to fly herself down to her um, ski chalet in Switzerland and um, in fact here she is she's just walking in the door now she's become my business partner oh okay and um, in four years she's um, achieved everything that I've achieved in aviation so she's got an airline transport pilot's license rated on every turboprop there is out there, uh, is a factory instructor on the Cirrus, um, is entering aerobatic competitions and wow. has just graduated to fly the P-51 Mustang out in the States. And I think I probably knew within the first hour or so that she'd be that good. Amazing. That's so interesting. Mm. But now, Charlie, tell me about the Spitfire. I love this. Uh, well, I, I'm so interested in the in the history of the Spitfire, and I'm always always very interested if somebody flies the Spitfire because I also heard that that's one of the. Well, uh, I read that that you you put the plane on when you fly. It's not like you get into the plane or yes. something like that. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It's um. I mean, it was, uh, it's, it's the greatest privilege of my life, um, for certain. Uh, my father took me to the Shuttleworth Collection, Old Warden, which is a lovely old airfield in the UK, which has a, a historic collection of aeroplanes. And that was where I first saw a Spitfire. I think I was six years old. 
and uh, Dad had sat me on the fence as this Spitfire parked up in right in front of us. And he said to me, that there's a Mark IX Spitfire, son. You want to pay attention to those because there won't be that many of them around before long. And I said, well, actually, Dad, it's a Mark V-B. For X number of years, I knew the full history of it. And he was utterly blown away because I was only sort of six and he had no idea that I knew so much. And he handed me over the fence to the pilot who then took me up, showed me around the aeroplane. And, and that was what set the spark mm-hmm. running for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, to be asked to fly one, I think really came about through uh, a good friend of mine, Richard Beryl, um, who is... Um, he's an aviation consultant, but he set up all the passenger flying uh, in the UK with what's called SSAC. And it's a uh, safety, security and conformity. It's a, it's a set of operational procedures that the CAA have approved to allow Warbird flying in Spitfires and Mustangs. And basically, if you remember the public, you never used to be able to go and get into a Spitfire, but now you mm-hmm. can on the basis of you treat it like a dangerous sport, like bungee jumping, paragliding. Mm. You watch various safety videos, have briefings, sign a waiver, and then you're allowed to go off and do it. And it's really thrown open warbird flying, particularly in the UK, uh, to a large number of people. And I'm very, very privileged to have been asked by uh, the Biggin Hill Heritage Hangar uh, to come and fly for them. They have the largest number of Spitfires in the UK, two-seaters, um, and operate a 1,000 hours of passenger flying a year uh, across the fleet. Um, wow. And it has created a demand for Spitfire pilots, the greatest demand since we, since the, the end of the Second World War, as it happens. And I was just right time, right place, right time, really. Um, Richard was saying, we need guys that can follow an operations manual so ideally an airline pilot uh, with heavy aircraft experience. Um, it needs to be somebody who's a flight instructor, so is used to dealing with a passenger, somebody with lots of tailwheel um, experience, ideally aerobatic experience. Um, and it's that by the time you go through that combination of requirements, um, there aren't that many people around that can do that um, or have that sort of background. And so it's really highlighted the fact that there's a bit of a shortage of people that can do this kind of work. But it is creating a demand of its own. So more people are going down that oh. road. But but first of all, I, I uh, are they built as two-seaters or are they actually built as one-seater? So most of the aeroplanes were single-seaters converted into a two-seater. Oh, I see. Okay. Yeah, so there weren't any two-seaters around during the war. Um, mm-hmm. So your conversion training was to fly a, a Harvard, a T6, mm-hmm. um, and do 50, 60 hours on that. And then you would be sent solo in a single-seat Spitfire, having read the pilot's notes and been wow. given guidance by somebody more experienced. Incredible. So what those 18, 19-year-old lads had to do was um, mm-hmm. it was quite a task. And now, um, uh, do you think it's important that these old um, aircraft are still flown? Do you think it's important for for pilots to get in those planes? 
I, it's history. It is a significant part of our history. I think it's living history as well. It's not like going around a stuffy museum where everything's parked no. up. Um, a Spitfire with the engine running is a completely different beast to one that's parked up silently in the back of the Hendon hangar. And I think that if we're going to educate the subsequent generations about what happened in the 1940s and the importance of why things like that don't happen again in the future, uh, by having them flown and flown in front of crowds is the best way to inspire uh, and and make a significant impression on the younger generations. Yeah, that's true. And it's, it's like you say, you know, these young guys who went in those planes and, and also never knew if they were going to come back. That's the thing, you know, that. I think I say this to, to people every time I take them up and we're flying at low level around Kent at 2,000 feet. And I say, look down these wings. Isn't that just the most magnificent sight? We've got the elliptical wings of a Spitfire with the roundels on the wings and we're flying over the, the green fields of Kent. And, and then I say, now imagine climbing up to 25, 30,000 feet on oxygen and the, and the temperature in the cockpit's minus 40 and you've got a wave of bombers coming the other way and you're 18, 19 years old and there's yeah. nothing between the destruction of London um, uh, and, and you staying alive, but you you going to get stuck in and fighting for your, your life and, and, and the defence of the country. And I can't imagine what that must have felt like. Yeah. It's been terrifying. Mm. No, that's true. But now, Charlie, tell me, uh, in the aviation industry, a young a young girl or boy coming up now wanting to be a pilot, what would be the best advice for them? That's a really, really good one. I've got two takes on this, really. And it's, mm -hmm. what do you want out of your career? And if the answer to that is, I want to fly the latest high-tech uh, jets that are out there in the industry, um, then there is no other way to do it other than to have a career in aviation. So it's just a case of keep going, keep striving on, do whatever it takes to get noticed. Network like mad. LinkedIn's brilliant for that. Um, work out where you want to go and make a, a, a route path, like a roadmap to get there. Uh, and just keep going, keep networking, keep being affable, friendly, work hard. Make sure every interaction that you have with anybody in the aviation industry is a positive one um, and that they will only say good things about you to other people. Um, for those that are passionate about warbirds and aerobatics and what we would probably class more leisure flying, I would give the advice that perhaps... And a, a career in aviation is not the right thing, uh, that you're better off getting a seriously well-paid job I and then know. buying an extra 300 <laughs> flying at the weekends <laughs> and having a lot of fun. Because there is, I've, I've had to make it my everything to mm. get to do the things that I do. And it hasn't led to a great deal of variety in life. Mm. Now, I'm happy with that. Um, but for other people, 
perhaps you could have a more rounded life by uh, by having another job. Um, aviation is sadly, with as the demand grows, um, the and there are more and more companies out there willing to undercut each other. Uh, the likes of Ryanair really have meant that the terms and conditions for pilots has gone down and down and down for many, many years. And it doesn't seem to be getting any better. So it's not a particularly well-paid job anymore. Um, the hours are unsociable. And um, it's quite a lot of the time it's shift work, so it's not good for your health particularly either. So you have to really decide what it is that you want to do. If you want to go and fly an Airbus A380, then there's no other way to do it than join British Airways or Emirates. So there's your roadmap straight away. You've got to get into one of those two airlines. Mm -hmm. If you want to fly aerobatics or warbirds or interesting airplanes, that can easily be done at the weekend uh, after you've had a successful week in the city making money. Oh, okay. Yeah, because it's not the cheapest um, way to to get there. It, I mean, the training is quite expensive. And then, of course, you have to not just pay the instructor, but also rent the plane. So it it um, it is it is not the cheapest activity. And I think in all honesty, anybody that's uh, thinking of starting now and wants to be an airline pilot, you really got to put £100,000 aside in order to... Mm-hmm get the licenses and the ratings that you need to get going. Now, if your first job pays £17,500 at Ryanair in the right-hand seat of a Boeing 737, having paid £20,000 for a type rating, for instance, it, it, it just doesn't start to stack up. And I think that's what they're finding in the US, is that the risk versus reward is too high, and they can't find enough pilots. And they're facing they are finally facing a massive shortage of pilots in the US now. Really? Mm. Yeah, I've I've heard this also with the pilot that I talked to previously from from America, um, you know, saying that this is, if somebody wants to uh, get into the career, this is the time because there's a shortage of pilots. Yeah, I I would also say, but you need to be an international pilot as well. It was great when we were part of EASA and Europe because one license did everything. But um, certainly for those in the UK, a, a UK license is keeping you in Little Britain. Mm. We can't work elsewhere. And so I'd advise anybody starting out on a, a, a corporate aviation or an airline career to get multiple licenses, to get UK, EASA and FAA American pilots licenses. Mm. Um, because there is a shortage in the US and they're starting to pay really quite attractive salaries to attract people across. And they'll also offer what's called an EB2W visa, which is a sort of an essential worker visa. And oh, if you have certain requirements, you can go across to the US and, and, and fly with a US carrier now. Um, and then having done that for five years, they'll sponsor you for a green card. So it's quite attractive. Um, and it's certainly another option for anybody starting out on their aviation career in Europe now. Well, it it all seems to be also, uh, you know, that dedication and that uh, what what are you willing to sacrifice to get to that end result? Yes, I think it's the same when in anything, isn't it? Really, you look um, at uh, anybody that's attained a very high level in sports. 
uh, or in business, the, the the time and the effort that goes in um, is enormous. And yeah. you almost have to sacrifice uh, quite a lot of other things in life to achieve it. Mm. Um, there was a wonderful gentleman called Paul Morgan who set up a, a company called Ilmore Engineering that made the engines for Formula One McLaren racing team that I grew up with his son, Patrick. Paul had a collection of World War II fighter planes up at Sywell in Northampton. And his favourite expression was, effort equals results. Yeah. Always remembered that. The more effort you put in and the more time you put into something, the better your chances of getting a good mm. result from it. Yeah. No, that's absolutely true. That's a good quote to remember. Mm. Yeah. Well, um, Charlie, tell me, what are your wishes still now for the future? My wishes for the future. So uh, our business, ckaviation.co.uk, uh, we're a serious training center. Um, we would like to develop that business over time into a bigger sales company and aircraft maintenance and just be a wonderful um, support network for people that are interested in private aviation. Mm -hmm. So we can train somebody from scratch all the way through to every rating and license they need in order to fly uh, a turboprop or a light jet on mm -hmm. business. Mm -hmm. So it's to develop that business. Um, and I think from a personal perspective, uh, my business partner, Isabel, she's into the aerobatics in a big way as well. We'd like to fly a formation aerobatic team together, which is something mm. we're working on bringing the aircraft into the business in order to achieve that. And then who knows, one day that might lead us to fly a Spitfire and a Mustang in formation together. And that's our... That's amazing. Our oh, amazing. We'd be the, uh, we'd be the only... Um, a partnership, I think, male and female really? will have done that in the world, and that's our ambition. I'm going to I'm going to um, keep watching your your LinkedIn profile to see when that happens. Really, um, it was so amazing to talk to you. You've got such a great story, um, yeah. and <laughs> I hope you do visit Vienna one day. And please let. Yeah, please let me know when you come. And if you're ever in London, do do uh, drop us a line, get in touch, and maybe we could take you flying. Oh, that would be amazing. Yeah, no, I definitely will do that. Oh, <laughs> I will definitely do that. That would be a great honor. All right, super. Okay, thank Charlie, thank you so much for your time. You're welcome. Okay. All right, take See care. You. Bye. Bye.